Welcome to Prima's 2022 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Senior Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Kathleen McChesney will discuss ethical responses to allegations of sexual misconduct. Are you prepared? Kathleen is the CEO at Kensell Consulting. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Kathleen. My pleasure. So what should schools and youth serving organizations be doing now to prevent sexual and physical abuse? Well, thank you for asking about this. It's such an important topic. Some of the more recent studies tell us that that one in four girls and one in 13 boys are abused in school settings around the country, or in other words, perhaps about 4%. So the problem of sexual abuse is real, and it is critical that schools and youth-serving organizations do everything they can to prevent abuse because we know what the the outcomes can be, obviously, the trauma, trauma to the child and the chances of, of an offender reoffending. So what I would tell schools and youth serving organizations about preventing abuse have to do, first of all, with having a, a good plan for preventing abuse. That includes having policies that people know and understand and that those policies uh, are, are logical, that they're based on on research from other institutions that have been successful in preventing or at least minimizing the incidence of abuse. What a school and youth serving organization can do is look at other good plans and policies. There's there's no need to reinvent the wheel in this regard because there are numerous resources throughout the country. For example, the Center for Disease Control has extensive information for schools and youth-serving organizations in preventing abuse. And everybody should start at the point of knowing what is required in your state. What does the state require of, of teachers, of volunteers, of staff members in knowing about abuse? And then there are some states that, that require abuse awareness programs to be presented to the students in age-appropriate ways, of course. And so the school or youth serving organization needs to know from the get-go what the, what the laws are. And then I always recommend that a school or organization create a general plan and tailor it to its specific situation. For example, you, you can find a general plan about preventing abuse but you also need to consider what your geography is of your of your school. For example, is it rural? Is it urban? What are the accesses to the school? Who comes in and out of the school or clubhouse or whatever your institution might be? And what are the demographics there? Is it a, a school that has just one or two grades? Is it a school that has K through 12? You need to factor those sorts of things in when you are creating your prevention plan. Once the plan is created, it's important that the organization have someone responsible for the prevention program, if you will. 
and they should make sure that the employees and the staff are trained about the plan, that they know what the plan is, and that the plan is implemented appropriately. Once you have a, a, a plan that everyone has been trained about and implemented, the plan needs to be reviewed periodically to make certain that it is meeting the needs of your organization or your institution. And we've found that sometimes uh, you can have some really good ideas in your plan and later find out that there are better ideas or you're doing some things that, that you don't really need to do. So that's why a plan should be reviewed. We recommend at least every two years, every, every year is, is probably bad. And then whoever is responsible for your program needs to be keeping abreast of the best practices in preventing abuse. And once again, there are tremendous resources throughout the country, the Center for Disease Control, the the Centers for Child Advocacy in Huntsville. And within every state, there are tremendous resources through Child Protective Services or other organizations. You also need to have a, in your program, in your plan for prevention, you need to have a robust background screening program so that your volunteers, your employees, all your adults, and student volunteers, for that matter, have a background check completed, something that would include a, a criminal check to make certain that the individuals have not been arrested or convicted of uh, any offenses involving violence or abuse. If you have a program where people are, your employees are driving children around, you need to make certain that they have uh, good driving records. And then you have to have, as another component, codes of conduct. It would be very logical for us to think that, well, people know you're not supposed to abuse children or you're not supposed to be alone alone with children in, in certain settings. But not everyone knows and understands that. So you need to be very clear in having a code code of conduct. And then you need to implement training programs for everyone at each level, meaning you need your administrators, your staff, your educators to be apprised and, and trained with regard to abuse awareness. And if you can manage it and you can provide the same training to parents and caregivers, that's an even better practice, and parents can learn a lot from professional information that's provided to them through the youth-serving organization or through the child school. We also recommend, in, in terms of prevention, that your program managers develop good contacts with law enforcement and child protective services, because if something should happen, and the chances are at least 4%, according to a recent study, that something will happen in your organization, you will have had a a good relationship or a knowledgeable relationship with the authorities before this even happens. And that can also help you in terms of prevention. And then the last thing I'd say about preventing physical and sexual abuse on campuses and in these organizations is to make certain that the administrators address red flag behaviors as strongly as possible, as quickly as possible, 
and that they follow up and monitor what uh, is going on. Many times abuse cases, as they're investigated, it's determined and discovered that there were some red flag behaviors that may or may not have been addressed or even reported. So that's that's incredibly key to be looking at those red flag behaviors. What should schools and youth serving organizations do if they receive an allegation of sexual or physical abuse against an adult or peer? Well, we hope, of course, that no one ever has to experience the abuse. No child has to experience this. But as as I indicated before, it does happen. And so the things that we recommend for schools and youth serving organizations, if they receive an allegation, well, first of all, they need to know what their state laws are regarding mandatory reporting. And even if the state law does not require reporting of abuse of a child, we always recommend a report to law enforcement because law enforcement professionals or child protection professionals, that's the business. They know what to do. They know how to deal with the person who reports abuse and also with their families. So that is that is the number one thing. They do need to report to the professionals and the authorities. But within the organization, we recommend that there is a, a designated trained professional to take that report if they, you know, if they have the ability to have someone on their campus or in their organization on a full-time basis, that's all the better. Sometimes organizations and schools can't afford to have that type of trained counselor or victim advocate, and they will use outside resources, you know, a counseling firm or something of that nature. The person who is receiving the report might not be the person that you would expect to receive it. Uh, If a child has experienced abuse, normally you would think that they would report to the principal or to their teacher or to the counselor. But it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes they will report to the class parent for those schools that have class parent type programs. Or they'll report to, they might tell another student, but they they don't tell an adult. Once an adult becomes involved, they have to be compassionate and they have to listen to what it is that the uh, person who's reported, the child who's reporting abuse is saying. This is not a time to be interrogating the child. It's not the job of the school or the youth organization to do that. But they do need to listen with compassion and uh, belief. The caregivers and parents also may be the reporters. And for young children, that's often the case. Again, it's important to, to listen to them carefully and seriously. That doesn't mean that there are occasions where where someone will make up a story about being abused, but it is that is very rare, and I think that's important for for administrators to understand. They also need to know when to refer cases not only to law enforcement child protective authorities, but to refer persons who've been abused to those people who can can help them, specialists in talking with children about abuse. And then 
the documentation is is another issue. When someone reports abuse within your organization, it is critical that there is a record-keeping system. There is a way to document the allegation. And beyond that, what the school or the organization is doing about it. You want to maintain a record because that will be helpful to law enforcement and child protective services, but also in in the event that there is some sort of litigation in the future and because sometimes the incidents aren't adult to child on child but peer-to-peer, you need to have that information to make decisions about the continued contact of between the person who's been abused and the uh, alleged offender. That brings me to another point, which is that it's important that within the, the setting of the organization, if there's an allegation of abuse, it is critical to separate alleged offender from the person who's making the report of abuse. That is for safety reasons and, you know, to prevent harassment. And it is is the logical thing to do, not necessarily the easiest thing to do, particularly if we have two students, but it is the right and appropriate thing to do. You also need to maintain, going back to the documentation, you need to, to have that system for documenting what's been done, but you need to have a confidential way to maintain those records. And then, of course, you need to make appropriate notifications depending on, you know, how your organization is is set up. But you need to make those notifications to your in-house counsel or your outside legal advisors and, of course, to your insurance carriers. So that kind of is a brief synopsis of what a school or youth-serving organization should do in, in the event that they receive such a allegation. Why is it important to be transparent about allegations of abuse? It's extremely important for youth serving organizations and schools to be transparent about allegations of abuse. There are a number of reasons for that. One is so that you can prevent future abuse. Uh, You want people to know that if there is an allegation, it's a time to reinforce the measures that you have put in place to prevent abuse. Perhaps, you know, your measures weren't working if there is abuse and you can use the information that you're receiving to fill in that gap. And um, it might be just a physical security gap. It might be a policy gap. But you need to be transparent about that and say, we are reinforcing our policy or adding a policy or adding a rule so that we can prevent future abuse. When an organization is transparent about the fact that there has been an allegation of abuse, it often encourages other people who, other children in this case, who've been abused to come forward because at that point they know that maybe they weren't the only one who was abused by someone. And it is extremely supportive and helpful for a child to come forward if they know that there are others who have reported and that gives them a sense that they will be believed if it's not just a a one-off report. But yes, there are other children. And of course, there's a caution there too. You want to make certain that 
these reports are coming in that they, the children are not interviewed together. And that's where law enforcement and child protective expertise comes in and helps you to, to gather that particular information about alleged abuse. Also, in terms of being transparent, this creates or helps to maintain the confidence in the ability of the organization to manage allegations of abuse. And critically important when a person has a child uh, that's partaking in youth activities or they are attending a school, you want to know as a, as a parent, as a caregiver, that the school is doing the right thing, that they're not covering up an incident. And in those cases, and there have been some around the country, where there has been cover-up of allegations of abuse, it's the cover-up often that outrages the parents and caregivers more than the incident itself because they will accuse the organization of hiding things and of protecting persons who abuse, whether it's a, a student or a, an adult. So you want to be very careful because it, it has everything to do with the reputation of your organization and, and the credibility of the people who work within it. And then last of all, about being transparent, it's just ethically and morally the right thing to do. If something has happened within the organization, you need to be sure that you are letting the public, your stakeholders, know about what's going on in such an important issue as sexual or physical abuse of persons within the school or the organization, you should not be doing anything less than being transparent. So what does accountability actually look like? Accountability is a really important factor in an abuse prevention program. It's important to make certain that there is a professional review of the circumstances of the allegation that has been brought forth. Of course, if there's a law enforcement or child protective service review that is assumed to be professional and done in the right way, sometimes there are cases, allegations that are reported long after the student or the child has left the organization and they are now adults. In those cases, the organization should bring in external professionals to do a review of what's happened so that the offenders can be located, uh, they can be per- there can be steps taken to prevent future abuse, and to hold those people accountable for their actions. Maybe the accountability is that they lose their jobs. Certainly, if there is a law enforcement review, there may be criminal charges filed. And you know, it's important to know when to use those those outside resources and to prearrange those if you can or need to. The accountability or accountability actions or consequences depends on the nature of the misconduct as well. Sometimes the red flag behaviors are perhaps a violation of the code of conduct, but they don't rise to the level of abuse. Uh, In that case, you need to to, uh, make sure you are doing the right things in terms of best practices to prevent future abuse. But if it's a serious violation of a code of conduct, 
with a child, then that may result in suspension and or dismissal from your organization of the person who is responsible. It's also important that the organizations make sure that the actions that they might take along that spectrum of actions are legal and appropriate to the crime, but also that they're timely. If an investigation drags on and on and on, it reflects that the organization isn't serious about preventing abuse or holding people accountable. And it's also a best practice if the range of discipline and consequences to violations of the code of conduct or to allegations of abuse are known to everyone from the outset, that that's clear within your program and your policies, that people will know if you do this, you will be dismissed or suspended or certainly if there's an allegation of abuse or violation of any type of of state law that the report will be made. There's internal accountability versus external accountability as well. The external being what I talked about a couple minutes ago relative to what the law enforcement agencies might do and, and what might happen in the criminal justice system. Internally, for lesser offenses, if you will, or things that don't rise to the level of a crime, there are things that the organization should do and and must do to have any credibility and to prevent any future abuse. And then another aspect of accountability can involve such things as peer review boards or external boards of experts who come in and will look at an incident and provide some professional guidance to the school or the organization about what is the appropriate thing to do in terms of holding the person accountable, which goes hand in hand, of course, with preventing future misconduct or abuse. And then the last thing I would remind everyone about uh, in accountability is to make certain that if you have employee contracts, that you are well aware of any restrictions relative to discipline and consequences for misconduct, that you what you might plan to do is consistent with those employee, uh, overall employee agreements. What are some emerging issues in the area of youth protection in schools and youth serving organizations? Well, thank you for asking about the emerging issues that's always on the minds of youth serving organizations and school administrators that we deal with. The various states around the United States have had what we call look back laws enacted. Those laws that allow people to sue an organization because someone was abused or harassed within the organization in years past. So what what these look back laws do is temporarily or permanently lift or remove the statute of limitations relative to sexual abuse cases, or it might change the uh, age of the victim in terms of reporting. It might allow, say, someone who is older, no longer a minor, to, to make a report and file some sort of civil litigation. Another related to that is emerging issues regarding the increase in litigation around the country uh, with regard to cases of abuse, harassment, and so forth. And so 
I think as an emerging issue, it's actually something we need to be much more cognizant of. Uh, certainly, uh, insurance uh, companies are avidly researching and watching those sorts of things. Don't misunderstand me here. The, in terms of accountability, which we talked about uh, a couple of minutes ago, being accountable to the person who has been abused is important. And uh, there are times that litigation is the method for doing that. Another emerging issue is with regard to social media platforms and problems. And there is a lot of communication, interaction, and the creation of opportunities for sexual misconduct to occur. For example, when when children meet up online with strangers or even persons, you know, within their own realm, their own school or a neighboring school or within their own organization. So there are things, you know, such as, as sexting and um, arranging for, for meets for children who are ignorant of the harm that can happen if they participate in those sorts of things. And then the the very last thing I I want to reinforce uh, that I talked about earlier uh, has to do with red flag behaviors. Some of the litigation that we have seen, and certainly in, in the media reporting, about red flag behaviors that were ignored by school or organizational administrators is also another red flag, if you will, to indicate that why was this behavior allowed to continue? Why was some reported behavior? I'll give you an example of a, a teacher who's who's texting a, a child uh, in the middle of the night about very personal matters. Well, those things are unacceptable. And if they're reported, they need to be stopped. And if they're not stopped, they need to be, you're, you're talking about a perhaps an employee or a teacher who needs to be uh, removed from your school or your organization. All of those failures to address red flag behavior can factor into future litigation, but more important, if there's a failure to address, an act of abuse could occur. So there are a lot of other issues I could talk about that are emerging, but it's important that whoever is managing the abuse prevention program for your school or your organization is aware of the emerging issues, the best practices, the methods for prevention, and the methods for accountability. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.